Thank you. Um, Aisha, I'm going to start by saying slightly the opposite of how I've been introduced, in that actually, as, as Alia said, I've been a student of this school for most of my adult life. It's been the greatest river in my life, if you like. And in the last couple of years, that has been joined by another river, which is mindfulness. But as anyone knows, when two rivers flow together, they become one river. They're not two separate things anymore. And, and that's my experience of it and, and what, I, what I hope to convey to you. So just to be clear on what I feel I can speak about, and that is the... Um, what's called the modern secular mindfulness movement, known as mindfulness-based stress reduction, which flows from the work of John Kabat-Zinn in the 1970s. So that's what I'm going to be speaking mainly about. I'm going to say a little bit about what mindfulness is and what it isn't, a little bit about what a mindfulness course entails, and I'm also going to try and place it as, if you like, um, in the context of the time we live in and why this is something that, that is interesting so many people now. I'm going to go over each of these things quite briefly um, because I'd like to allow lots of times for questions um, at the end. So the first thing to say is that actually you can't talk about mindfulness. Um, because it's to do with direct experience and not conceptual thinking. So really the best way we can begin this is by just dipping our toes slightly into the water of mindfulness practice. And I'd like to begin with a very short practice of just bringing ourselves present, to be present sitting in our own seats in this room. So, if I could invite you to um, just get yourselves comfortable and uh, yeah, close your eyes if that feels okay or keep them open with a soft gaze just in front of you. So, just to begin by taking your awareness, your attention, down to the weight of your body, weight sinking into the chair you're sitting on and feeling the weight of your feet on the ground. So just take a moment really sensing into those areas of your body that are in contact with the ground and the chair. Just feeling the pressure and the warmth and being aware of the support of the ground holding you up underneath. So there's the weight of the body bearing down, being unconditionally supported by the ground beneath, feeling held. And here, not thinking about it, just directly sensing what it feels like to have your buttocks resting on the chair. And now gradually taking the attention to the spine rising up out of the pelvis, 
just gently and slowly, almost vertebra by vertebra, take your attention up the spine, allowing a sense of lengthening as we do so. Gently running the attention up the spine and lengthening. When we come to the shoulders, notice if they're hunched up a bit and if they are, just let them soften away and relax down from the ears. And then the attention in the back of the neck, gently lengthening the back of the neck so that the top of the head points upwards and the chin comes down slightly. Feeling this lengthening throughout the whole spine and noticing if that makes you feel any different from however you were sitting before. And now bring the attention round to the front of the body, to the face. Checking in perhaps with the forehead and the jaws, whether we're holding any tension there, and if we are, just allowing them to soften a little. Coming down the front of the body now to the, to the chest and the belly. Just checking whether our breathing is soft or whether we're holding any tightness there. And if we are seeing if it's possible just to let it go a little on an out breath. So the breath flows freely in and out of the body without restriction. Noticing the hands as they rest on the knees or in the lap. Noticing whether they're clenched or whether we can allow them just to, just to relax. So now expanding the attention to the body as a whole, sitting here. Bring a sense of the whole body. The space the body takes up. The space all around the body. To the front, to the back, to the sides, above and below. A sense of the whole body taking up its space, its place, here in this room. Fully present. Okay, thank you. 
So <coughs> mindfulness emerges from the great spiritual tradition of Buddhism. And the term actually refers to moment-by-moment awareness of life unfolding right here, right now, as you, as me, and as everything else. Now, we know that this moment-to-moment awareness is not specific to Buddhism. It's at the root of all the world's great spiritual traditions. And here at the school, we encounter it right in the introductory lecture. The degree of evolution of a person is measurable only by the constancy of their awareness of reality. So right from the start, this matter of constancy of awareness is, is, is fundamental to this education we're involved with. The term mindfulness refers actually both to this moment-by-moment awareness and to what we might call a toolbox of meditation practices. Now, the practices are designed to help us to develop, to stabilize and to cultivate the ability to pay attention on purpose in the present moment to whatever it is we're choosing to pay attention to, whether it's what we're, we're seeing, we're hearing, we're feeling, we're tasting, we're knowing, whether that be interior or exterior. This ability to learn to fully pay attention to whatever it is we're paying attention to. But right from the beginning, when we're speaking of mindfulness, it's important to realize that what's most important is not the particular objects we're paying attention to, but it's the quality of awareness that rises to the surface when we learn to pay attention in this manner. And, and we'll, we'll go into, into this more fully as we go on. So what is most important is the awareness that directly feels and knows without thinking immediately what is our experience at any moment. So again, just, just a little, little exercise. Just for a couple of breaths, please, and you might want to close eyes again. Just for a couple of breaths, could we perhaps pay attention to breathing? Could we pay attention to breath's movement in the body? Perhaps being aware of when the breath enters our body at the nostrils, feeling the cool intake of air as we breathe in, perhaps noticing that it's slightly warmer as we breathe out as it's been warmed by the body. We might be aware of the breath passing over the back of the throat. Of the chest rising and falling as the lungs expand 
and contract. Or right down in the belly, the abdomen, swelling on the in-breath and falling back on the out-breath. Just for a couple of breaths, pay attention to breathing. So, thank you for that. So, how did you know you were breathing? Anybody? But were you aware of it coming and going? <coughs> yes. How? I think it's almost too sort of obvious to, to answer, really. I think the answer is you just know. You don't need to think about the fact of your breathing. You know directly and without any intermediary that you're breathing. Yeah? And that's the quality of awareness we're talking about. It just knows. Nobody needs to tell you whether you're breathing or not. You just know because it's a directly there. Your awareness directly without any conceptual intermediary knows that you're breathing. So that's just a little kind of taster of this, this quality of awareness we're talking about. That's the quality of awareness that we're interested in, if you like, in, in coming to more and more to the surface with mindfulness practice. Because the important thing about this quality of awareness, as you've all probably just experienced, it's not something you do. It just is. And actually, this fundamental quality of awareness is actually something we already are. It's not something we do. It's not something we have to achieve. It's something we already are. And it's something we already are because this is, if you like, this belongs to being itself, ever awake, ever aware, and it's being which is present right now, right here, as ourselves. So this quality of being ever awake, ever aware, is intrinsic to the being, which is actually the real root of our own existence. It's, um, it's what's present, and it's what's to be found, and first course students, I'm using this word found deliberately in the sense of wujud, what is found. It's what's to be found at what Rumi calls the root of the root of the root of your own self. When you go right to the root of what is present as yourself, there is being, awake and aware. And this is the quality of awareness that mindfulness hopes to cultivate and bring forward. 
And this is true of every single human being. This is the birthright of every human being, regardless of race, religion, age, belief, culture. None of those qualifying adjectives pertain because this is to do with the core of our existence. And any mindfulness practice is really simply a door. And they are all doors into the room of what we already are. Now, before we go any further, I'd just actually like people to do a little reality check of how you're, when you hear the word mindfulness, I just want you to be clear whether you're carrying any associations in that with thinking. Because in English, we are so used to associating mind with thinking. And it's very important to realize that mindfulness is not thinking. That actually mindfulness is, well, mind and heart are inseparable. And mindfulness is actually inseparable from love because the, the being of which we are all expressions is intrinsically loving. The consciousness that being has of itself is intrinsically loving, intrinsically compassionate. These are not added qualities. They are intrinsic to the consciousness, the awareness that being has of itself. So when we talk about mindfulness in its, in its best sense, its deepest sense, we must remember that we are also talking about what we might call heartfulness, love, compassion. It's not a cold, analytic faculty. So I'd like to just go on now to some contemporary <coughs> definitions of mindfulness. Knowing what's happening while it's happening without preference. That, I believe, is Rob Nairn's, is it? That's Rob Nairn's definition. John Kabat-Zinn, paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally, to things as they are, as if our life depended on it. And each of these qualifications is important. On purpose, we have intended to place our attention in a particular way, right now, completely accepting of whatever it is, completely accepting of things as they are, and with a quality that it's as if our life depended on it. The next definition, the awareness that arises when we pay attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally to things as they are, and as if our life depended on it, brings out what I've just been saying, that there's one thing that is actually the act of paying attention to something. And the, if you like, the, the practice of learning to pay attention in that way, and we'll come on to this later. But what's important is that when we do, this intrinsic quality of awareness that belongs to our being can then rise to the surface. Because so much of the time in our distracted minds, we don't allow ourselves to sink into that awareness. 
inhabiting the present moment with awareness, equanimity, clarity and caring, and a radical act of love. Now, in the modern mindfulness movement, the modern, let's say, the stream coming from John Kabat-Zinn, the invitation to constancy of awareness is presented in a completely secular form. And this is absolutely deliberate. Now, I just want us to reflect on the fact that actually secular although we may think of it as meaning the opposite of, of, of sacred or spiritual, secular actually means of the time, of its own time. So, in this case, mindfulness isn't really concerned with an imaginary boundary between what is considered to be spiritual and what isn't. And, you know, perhaps the first course students could cast your mind back to, to the Temple of Apollo at Didyme and the talk there about, you know, the barrier between the profane and the sacred. But we're in a time where that barrier isn't there and whether everything is sacred or everything is profane. The secular vision, if you like, is that really how things are seen depends on who the seer is known to be. And uh, I think particularly here in this school, when we encounter right at the beginning that we're committed to seeing God's vision of himself, that vision is all-inclusive and does not admit any boundaries. So this, to me, is why I personally like very much this thing of it being secular. I don't think you need necessarily take it as something that's less than spiritual, but something that doesn't set itself to accept any definitions which may be limiting. So the interesting thing about that is that not only are mindfulness courses open to anyone, but people come to them, many people who come to them have no conscious spiritual seeking. They, they don't consider themselves to be on a spiritual quest, they, they don't have a, a conscious motivation towards self-knowledge. Many people just come to relieve unbearable suffering, mental or physical, and, and we'll go into this more later. But the interesting thing there is that, you know, the approach then is, if you like, much more empirical. The approach is just do it. Just investigate the fact of your own awareness. Dive into the ocean of your awareness to whatever depth suits you and discover what you discover. And, and perhaps this was perhaps the most fundamental insight given to John Kabat-Zinn back in the 70s to take these practices out of a spiritual context into, initially into a medical centre, but into a completely um, into everyday life and communicate them in a completely secular, everyday vocabulary so that they would become accessible to many, many, many more people. So, what is a mindfulness course? 
Now, a mindfulness course usually extends over eight weeks. And there are times of gathering together in a group. Now, this can be once a week for eight weeks, or it can be, as we do it here, three weekends over a period of two months, so that there's eight weeks in between. And interspersed with, um, as we said, daily practice, every day on your own, at home, or wherever you happen to be. So the times of gathering together introduce you to, you know, what mindfulness is. It introduces you to the practices and it allows you to inquire together into what's coming up as a result of your meditation practice. The, the daily practice then consists of, of doing every day the practice you've been introduced to in the group session. And actually this dynamic of, of times together in a group and, and times at home is very deliberate and immensely fruitful because it's said that actually 90% of the effectiveness of a mindfulness course is your own practice at home. And this has to be the case because the, the mindfulness is about your own experience, what you come to know directly as a result of your own experience. But then when you come together in a group, there's, there's two aspects to what happens. One is that the process of inquiry allows you to reflect upon and perhaps understand even better you know, what, you, you, what you've experienced in your practice. But the other, the other aspect, and perhaps actually for many people often the most transformative aspect, is to hear other people's experiences to hear that these things you've thought all these years were your own particular hang-up and made you such a dreadful person are actually experienced by just about everybody else there. Yeah? And so you begin to get a sense that actually what, we're look what I am looking at in my own experience is not this narrow little box called me that's separate to everybody else. Actually, this is the human condition of which I am an example, and so is everybody else. So this freedom from beginning to think, oh God, this is me, look at her looks, what's going on with me and my experience, to saying, this, this is human experience, allows people to begin to get a, a perspective on it that's very different from thinking they're just dealing with their own stuff. Um, why eight weeks? There is a huge body of research showing that as little as eight weeks intentional daily practice makes a difference not only experientially but actually it changes the structure and function of the brain. It's an extraordinary thing, only eight weeks practice and the brain noticeably is different in structure and function. Um, we'll speak a little bit more about that later. So on a course, what does mindfulness training consist of? It consists, as we, we, we said earlier, of systematic training in paying attention on purpose, non-judgmentally, in the present moment, to things as they are. You're systematically introduced to guided meditations with different foci of attention. The body, 
at rest and in movement, sounds, emotions, thoughts, eating. Um, With all of these, the intention is to bring your full attention to what is actually happening now in whatever it is you're choosing to pay attention to. And it is actually quite extraordinary how mindfulness practice can begin to show you the extent to which we actually don't do that. So, certainly in the eight-week program, one of the very first meditations people are introduced to is a body scan. And that's basically systematically taking a very kind and gentle and loving attention to every part of your body in turn. Usually beginning, as anybody who's done a mindfulness course will know with a big grin, with your left, your big toe on your left foot. And the instructions are very, very clear. And that is to be aware of things are right now. Is there any tingling? Does it feel hot? Does it feel cold? If there's no sensation at all, well, just register that. Okay, nothing there at the moment. But even in paying attention to your little, your a toe of one foot, it is extraordinary how many people try to make something happen. Say, so, oh, I can't feel anything there. I'll wiggle it. Then I'll feel it more. And it, can you see this tiny little exercise shows us how much we actually aren't quite content with being aware of things as they are right now. We want to make them a bit different, a bit more interesting. So even paying attention to your left toe can show you a great deal about how you, how you approach your moment-by-moment experience. So in the mindfulness courses, you're introduced to, to guided meditation with different foci. And most importantly of all, perhaps, you start to bring full attention to a particular aspect of your everyday life. It might be brushing your teeth or washing up or walking upstairs. There's very deliberate um, practice in bringing attention to a very, very limited, manageable aspect of your everyday life. And then over the the coming weeks, perhaps another one. But the idea being to bring more and more uh, mindful attention to your life as you live it. Because, you know, the arena of mindfulness is your life, or rather, life as it lives you, in whatever you happen to be, not just sitting down doing a particular practice. So, what is the point of doing this practice? setting yourself intentionally to do a practice every day for eight weeks. It is, as we've said, the embodied awareness that comes more and more to the fore when you learn to pay attention in this way. Because quite frankly, most of the time, most of us are doing anything but paying attention to the present moment. We are distracted by the past, the future, daydreams, worries, plans, regrets, judgments, emotions. 
really anything, and I think anybody who sits down to meditate for a few minutes knows that their mind will wander off anywhere but here and anywhere but now, as if we had no control over it at all. So I think if we just read this, uh, this little slide to ourselves, we can all recognize that, uh, yes, this, this is just what it's like when you sit and try and meditate, for example. Now, you know, the fact that minds do wander off isn't in itself a problem because uh, this is what minds do and do very well. But instead of, when thoughts come, instead of recognizing them just as thoughts, as things that come and go, most of us, most of the time, very quickly build something onto it. So without even noticing that we're doing it, we, we can graft onto a passing thought a whole package of emotions, past associations, bodily feelings. We regard these passing thoughts as facts, not passing thoughts. And very often this can set up an almost automatic cascade of emotions. So we've wandered off very far from where we wanted to be and we've, we've, we've some, sometimes really ended up in quite a mess. Um, because by doing this, we actually give thoughts a degree of existence that doesn't belong to them. We invest them with an existence that doesn't belong to them. And by doing this, we also invest in our own sense of I. I as the person who is actually living at the center of this history that's developing in our minds as a result of our thinking. It belongs to me. And in fact, you know, this clinging to this, this clinging to these these schemas of our self-existence that we fabricate are how we continually recreate and reinvent and re-energize our sense of I. And in fact, the Buddha summarized his whole teaching as nothing is to be clung to as I, me, or mine. So I think, you know, if we look at it, actually our distracted minds are usually anywhere but here and anywhere but now. And all of us, I mean, how often have we drunk a cup of, cup of coffee and not really tasted it? How often have we walked from A to B and been so lost in thought that really we haven't the faintest idea what we passed? I think many of us can recognize that that is a, a state of mind we're in quite a lot of the time. And to that extent, we're not actually awake to life unfolding itself as me right now, right here, in all its splendor. We're somewhere else. And the whole thing of mindfulness is to start to be present to life unfolding as it is to start to be present, to be awake, and to be aware right now. And, you know, the fact is, if we, if we look at the Hadith, every moment he is in a new configuration, now is actually the only moment we truly have. And if we're not alive to now, are we ever truly alive?
So I'd like to come on now to saying more about this paying attention and talking about the way in which we pay attention. As we've said before, this idea of mindfulness, of paying attention, can sound a little bit clinical, a little bit cold, a little bit microscopish, but it's not like that at all. We have to remember, as we said before, that mindfulness is inseparable from love, from kindness, from compassion, because awareness belongs to being itself, you know, ever awake, ever aware, intrinsically loving. John Kabat-Zinn has the, um, uses the analogy of, for, for a, a awareness as like a mother holding a child. A mother holds a child with love, unconditionally accepting whatever condition the child is in. And this equally is the quality of awareness, can hold anything, joyful and painful, trivial and momentous, things we would like to hang on to, the things we prefer to push away, personal and global, anything. Awareness can hold anything. And just as when a mother, for example, holds a sick child lovingly, that very act of loving holding is actually, it's certainly soothing and often healing. This is actually the quality of holding things in awareness, especially difficult things. Whenever whatever arises, especially if what arises is difficult, can be welcomed as much as possible, brought close, held close, without rejecting, probing, trying to make it go away, trying to make things different, then the extraordinary thing that the very fact of holding things in this open-hearted awareness begins to allow them to soften, change, and very often disappear. And you may say that that has to be experienced to be believed, but the fact is that thousands of people all over the world, including myself, have experienced it. So looking in a little more detail, what are called in mindfulness seven attitudinal foundations. I'll just go through them and then we'll talk about them a bit more. Non-judging, patience, beginner's mind, trust, non-striving, acceptance, letting go. Um, they look uncannily like the qualities of a spiritual way, and you might perhaps remember, I don't know if you've come across the five qualities shown to Ibn Arabi's saintly wife, Maryam, in a dream. Although, of course, in this case, there's no suggestion that a spiritual way is what is being undertaken. So, they describe in some detail the way we can hold things in awareness 
in the present moment. And I think when we begin to enter into mindfulness practice, we begin to see very, very quickly how much we don't do that. So, actually, most of us have judgments about just about everything and everyone. Patience, well, we want things to happen in the way that we want them to happen and when we want them to happen. Beginner's mind. Most of the time we encounter familiar situations and especially familiar people with an identicate of who this person is. Okay, this is this person, that's what they're like. I know what we're talking about. Whereas, in fact, we don't. What we don't know about any situation far exceeds anything we do know about it. If we really are honest about the way we approach things, do we actually trust that life will unfold perfectly well without me having to bring something about in the way I think it ought to happen? Do we actually strive to close the gap between where we perceive ourselves to be and where we think we want or ought to be? Or do we rest in the acceptance of how things fully are at this moment? Do we actually let a moment go? Or do we carry a moment into the next moment, sometimes into days or weeks or months or years, so our life can be conditioned to a large extent by what we're carrying and hanging on to from something that happened in the past. These attitudes are called attitudinal foundations because they actually belong to awareness itself. But we can also intentionally cultivate them. And by intentionally cultivating them, I mean, on the one hand, noticing the extent to which you think, ah, yeah, I see, I'm really judging that situation, or oh, yeah, I really am trying to push that away or avoid it. And consciously allow yourself to begin to, well, allow these to be present in the way you accept what's happening to you. And in mindfulness practice, it, it's a well-known um, fact that intention, attitude, and awareness actually go together. And deepening in any one of those leads to deepening in the others. So the more we bring these attitudes intentionally to our experience, the more our intrinsic awareness arises to the surface, and the more we sink into the awareness that we already actually are, the more we find that this is the way we approach what happens to us. You know, it would be lovely to talk about all of these, and maybe if there's any questions afterwards, we can look at them. But I just want to um, mention one specifically, the beginner's mind. Um, this was uh, a mind that's described by Suzuki Roshi as a mind that's uh, open to thousands of possibilities, whereas in the expert's mind, the possibilities are usually closed down to very few. 
And I'd also actually quite like to relate this to the salawat that we all sing um, after zikr, the phrase nabi umiyun, that word umi, describing the prophet, is often translated as illiterate. But actually, the word comes from the root meaning mother. And the word actually means he who is as when his mother gave birth to him. So even when we encounter in, in the zikr, Nabi Umiyan, we're referring to this condition of open receptivity, which receives the moment as it is, not colored by our own preference and conditioning. Okay, so we'll move on now to look at the MBSR, the modern mindfulness movement, as if you like a a bit of a phenomenon of our time. So it begins, as we said, with the work of John Kabat-Zinn in the 1970s. At that time, he was working as a molecular biologist at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center. And as a practicing and deeply committed and practicing Buddhist, he was also deeply questioning, in his own words, what his karmic assignment was. So he was deeply, deeply questioning, what's my role? How, how can I be of service? And actually, his own account of what happened, I personally find so fascinating that I've left some copies if anybody wants to read it later. It's too long to read the whole thing. But I'm just going to read a little bit of it now. He was um, he was on a long meditation retreat. And one afternoon, on about day 10 of the retreat, he had, and now I quote, a vision that lasted maybe 10 seconds. I don't really know what to call it, so I call it a vision. It was rich in detail and more like an instantaneous seeing of vivid, almost inevitable connections and their implications. It did not come as a reverie or thought stream but something quite different, which to this day I cannot fully explain and don't feel the need to. So what he saw in this moment of instantaneous seeing, I don't know what we'd call that, cash perhaps? He saw the possibility of taking these meditative practices out of their spiritual contexts and making them available to anyone and everyone in a secular vocabulary, starting with the hospital where he worked. He put himself wholeheartedly behind what he'd been shown. And the extraordinary thing is that everything he saw in those 10 seconds has come to pass. So I think we can be fairly confident that this was a moment of real seeing. This was not some invented idea.
He started working in the hospital with people suffering from incurable pain, um, offering again not to cure their pain, but to change their relationship to their pain by introducing them to mindfulness practices. Now, he knew these practices were drawn from Buddhism. They didn't, and they didn't need to. They just needed to do it. And the results of this were absolutely spectacular and humbling. It didn't only change their relationship to their pain. In most cases, it changed their lives. The program he developed is known as Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, MBSR. And it really has gone viral, to use a computer term. It is in application now throughout the world. In this country, Professor Mark Williams and colleagues have developed a variant of this known as mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which specifically introduces into MBSR um, elements drawn from modern cognitive psychology that are specifically to do with, if you like, the Western mindset. Uh, this was developed, first of all, as a treatment in a clinical setting to deal with recurrent depression and was soon found to be more successful in preventing depressive relapse than drugs. And so it's now available on the National Health Service. And the very fact that a course of meditation is now the preferred course of treatment and um, available on the National Health Service, I think is something we wouldn't have dreamed of 10 years ago. So these mindfulness-based approaches, they really are being successfully integrated into a huge number of fields. They're being integrated into medicine, psychology, neuroscience, healthcare, Education, the mindfulness in schools movement is a huge movement now, thank God. Parenting, childbirth, business leadership, stress management, so many fields. And, you know, people everywhere want this. It really is, to my mind, meeting a real need and receptivity of this time. There's another characteristic of the modern mindfulness movement that I wanted specifically to mention here, and that is that it's bringing together two different ways of knowing. It's bringing together Western empirical science and what you might call the empiricism of the meditative or consciousness disciplines. And it's bringing them together without the thorny and usually fruitless arguments about science and religion. So as an example of this, there's a massive body of work within neuroscience using fMRI imaging, which shows how mindfulness training results in changes both to the structure and the function of the brain, as we mentioned earlier. So, for example, your hippocampus, which results, which is to do with learning and memory, gets thicker. The right amygdala, amygdala which mediates fear-based reactions, gets smaller. 
there's a proven effect now via what's called your vagus nerve, which connects your brain to your heart and your digestive system, of the soothing effects, the hugely beneficial effects of mindfulness meditation on our physiological systems. And all of these changes that we can observe through MRI imaging correspond to the experiential changes, the way the person reports that their experience is changing. It's been shown that when we, there's a term in mindfulness called selfing. It's this constant story we tell ourselves about our own existence. Selfing is the term. And I'm doing this because actually there's a brain work, there's a, a network in the brain that's actually kind of here that goes like this when you're constantly telling yourself the story of yourself. And actually, when you enter into mindfulness practice, different areas of the brain light up. This one quietens down, and this one, others light up. And I find that interesting because, you know, we human beings, we put so much time and energy into creating our sense of self. So much time and energy into it. And uh, I find it rather interesting that we even use different brain, work, brain networks to do it. I wanted to mention this because this coming together of the inner and the outer sciences has to be the hallmark of a time which recognizes the unity of the one, not only interior, interiorly, but exteriorly too. And I'd like to show you what I think is a rather nice quote from Mark Williams. The world can only benefit from such a convergence and intermixing of streams as long as the highest standards of rigor and empiricism native to each stream are respected and followed. The promise of deepened insights and novel approaches to theoretical and practical issues is great when different lenses can be held up to old and intractable issues. In other words, by bringing these together, we can probably go much further than by keeping them apart. So, just a quick word now on what is actually my own view, and you probably wouldn't hear it in any, um, any other mindfulness uh, class or course. Just as any individual can progress towards greater realization of their original purpose, so the same is true for mankind as a collective, mankind as a whole. And I think when you, you see this in the Fasus, the Fasus itself deals with these two aspects. It deals with what you might call realization, individual realization for any person. And it deals with the movement of humankind towards perfectibility. And this has to be the case because both an individual human and collective humanity are both images of one single nafs. So how can they be different? And 
we can see from what we're involved with that what we might call the movement of existence is towards ever greater, ever more realization, greater reali- ever more universal realization of who we are and what we are. And I personally welcome the fact that there is a possibility now in our time for anyone, whatever their belief, whether they consider themselves to be spiritual or not, to, if you like, to return, to deepen in, to sink into the awareness of that pure, compassionate (coughs) being who is present as ourselves and who loves to be known by and through us. And I'd like to just end with how John Kabat-Zinn sees things. The author's perspective is grounded in what the Zen tradition refers to as the thousand-year view. He sees the current interest in mindfulness and its applications as signaling a multi-dimensional emergence of great transformative and liberative promise, one which, if cared for and tended, may give rise to a flourishing on this planet akin to a second and this time global renaissance for the benefit of all sentient beings and our world. And may it be so. Thank you.